What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedeira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where Anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says no dark sarcasm in the classroom. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So guys, uh, I thought today we could talk a little bit more about how, uh, you know, computers just don't get me, man. They just don't understand. They're like parents. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, parents never understand the importance of the flavor of Apple Jacks. That's true. Among many other things. True yes. fact. They also don't understand our music. Right. They don't they don't get my clothes, my style. Uh, <laughs> now we're we're talking about how computers you know, trying to teach computers how to understand what we mean when we say things. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about computers and natural language and how that's a really tough problem, mm -hmm. right? Getting computers to understand the way we humans communicate naturally. Yeah, and especially trying to get them to mimic it or, or feed it back to us and participate in a conversation that's convincingly human. That's right. the standard 
problem of the Turing test. Yeah, you know? e- even if it's not convincingly human, at least useful, right? right? Like we, you know, I, I would settle for a computer that would understand what I mean when I say things a certain way mm-hmm. and give me the stuff that I'm requesting, even if it can't hold a conversation with me. Right. Uh, Right, right. We don't always need Siri to to respond back. If if she could just find what we're bloody looking for, exactly. that would be pretty good. A Cortana would be another great example. Windows yeah. 10 has just been released the day we're recording this, and I'm seeing a lot of reports about how Cortana is almost, but not quite, awesome. <laughs> you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about Siri is that Siri is playful. Like can, yeah, Siri, yeah. Siri will sometimes be coy and sometimes like play along when you're when you're being I don't know suggestive or weird at her. I don't say this from personal experience. Right. I've read about this, <laughs> uh, but I get the impression that that is not original, like synthetic behavior that has been assembled by Siri's logical engines. No, that is more of a hard coded behavior. Yeah, I think that's more of the they're sort of jokes put in directly by right, the programmers. Right, the programmers anticipate the kind of like they just say, "Well, if I found out that this." audio personal assistant could answer questions that I ask of it. What are some of the ridiculous questions I might ask? And they probably made a list and and that's probably the basis for a lot of those funny responses, things like where can I hide a body? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but that's all coded by your word choice. It's not like it's not like, you know, Siri is gonna listen to you say something like, Huh, Siri, where can I find another pizza place? Because I'm so interested in pizza today. <laughs> like she she's not gonna come back with 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 like, well, maybe you should try some chicken nuggets this yeah. time, fatty. Like I mean like I'm thinking know. it's Taco Tuesday. <laughs> chicken nuggets, the cure to fattiness. <laughs> Uh, That would be a a revolutionary episode of Forward Thinking. However, we wanted to talk today about – I learned it from Laura. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to talk today more about how computers uh, might soon or at least down the road learn to recognize not just what we say but what we mean when we say it. Right. So could Siri participate in a sarcastic sort of – caustic, back-and-forth, humorous exchange with you without that being hard-coded by the programmers? Could, could right. Siri detect it and even and even synthesize it herself? Right. So to start this, we thought it might be useful to kind of give a quick overview of why there's this disconnect between natural language and what computers understand. Mm-hmm. And basically, computers, machines work in uh, in machine code or assembly language. Assembly language is generally defined as a very low-level programming language, sometimes a one-to-one correspondence with the architecture of the actual machine you are using it on. So the thing about this, the defining characteristic is that computers understand it and humans have real trouble with it because it's it's so far removed from any sort of language that we use. It would be like looking at a just enormous page, just a block of text that are all zeros and ones and trying to make any sense of it. Um, I, I assume that most human beings, the vast majority, would be unable to do so. So we humans communicate in natural language. That's what I'm doing right now. And natural language isn't just agree- an agreed-upon syntax and grammar. It also has all these other elements to it, uh, implications where you know you don't say something 
uh, outright, but it is implied by the way you say it or the tone of how you deliver something, including sarcasm. Sure. Uh, sure. Or even the gestures that you're making or the facial expression. Yeah, I think we talked pretty recently on this program about how one major difference is that humans learn language by induction rather than by, you know, we don't have an, uh, an explicit list of rules and mm. uh, and definitions like we don't learn how to speak our language by reading a dictionary and a grammar book. You just sort of gradually intuit the rules based on experiencing them. Yeah, yeah, and we free associate a lot of stuff with a lot of other stuff. That's true, yeah. Uh, So one thing that we have to do is find a way to bridge that gap between Mm -hmm. the way we humans communicate and the way machines understand uh, commands. And we do that through programming languages and compilers. A programming language, depending upon whether you call it low level or high level, is something that may be easier for a human to grasp. In general, if we say it's a high-level programming language, that means it's more like the kind of languages we use. Although, if you're unfamiliar with programming language, it still looks like gibberish. Gibberish, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, this is a funny fact about programming languages. People often think of them as something that helps the computer understand. That's not what it is. It's something that helps the human understand. (laughs) Right, right. The programming language is a tool for you. Right. It's so that the human can say, uh, this is, this is the input I'm going to give you. This is the desired output. Make it go. Yeah. And so on the machine side, they have, there are compilers and compilers, the job of a compiler is to essentially translate, to switch from that programming language into machine language. So it's this combination that allows machines to understand what we want them to do. But more recent work, Really, this has been going on for decades, but truly in the last decade, we've seen a lot of work done in in trying to come up with ways where machines can deal with natural language. Mm-hmm. And the benefit is obvious because it removes a barrier between use, you know, a human trying to use a machine and the machine doing what it what the human wants it to do. So for a very simple example, if you go on your computer and you wanted to find a particular piece of information, you could just type something in and it would understand what you meant by that. So it wouldn't return a page of search results that are in some way related to what you wanted. It would return exactly what you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's a simple example. There are lots of other examples of this, but we're still just at the very early stages of getting a good grasp on natural language. We're getting better at computers parsing sentences to at least make an educated guess as to what we want. But we're we're not all the way there yet. Uh, but we wanted to talk about some interesting tools that are getting us closer. And one was one that was uh, reported on in July 2015 that I really wanted to talk about, which was IBM's Tone Analyzer. Uh, yeah, I had some fun playing with this earlier today. Uh, we can talk about the results I came up with later, but I think... A common theme in our analysis of this will be that it's interesting, but maybe more for the reasons that it fails than for <laughs> the reasons it succeeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. It, it's kind of a very advanced version of of Clippy, almost in that way. <laughs> I'm of. like, oh, it's really cute the way that you have no idea what's going on. I almost think of it as as like an of evolution of just word count. Yeah, like yeah. it's still counting words. It's just now classifying what word is what, like mm-hmm. or what general categories words fall into, but it's part of the Watson development cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that if you are familiar with IBM's Watson, you know, you know that that refers to the machine that played on Jeopardy 
and beat two Jeopardy champions. Yeah, which makes it hilarious that we're using words like cute to describe <laughs> something associated with Watson. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, one it, of the most amazing computers ever put together. It's really a, a function of how difficult the task is. Yeah. More so than, than how d- dumb this computer is. That's, <laughs> right. not, that's not what I'm saying. No offense, Watson. No, no, totally. The, I, I'm on the same page because Watson I, was obviously amazing. It was able to take Jeopardy clues, which are in the form of an answer, and come up with the appropriate question more frequently than not. And we've talked a little bit about how it did this in that it was able to come up with potential answers, or mm-hmm. rather questions if you prefer, and then judge how probable that particular response was to being the correct one. And if it met a certain threshold, Watson would buzz in and offer that up as the response to the clue. Yeah, and so what made Watson interesting was different than what makes most Jeopardy contestants interesting. (laughs) It it, it was because most Jeopardy contestants are competing based on their – essentially their volume of trivia that they have Mm -hmm. contained in their brain. They're not having trouble discerning what the clue is trying to say. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, like they get the puns in it and, and they get the sarcasm or whatever it is. I, I, I guess Alex Trebek isn't sarcastic yeah. very often, but, but you know, but yeah. references as well. Things, sure, things sure. Better. Cultural references. Exactly. And context. Yeah. yeah, right. So for them, what's impressive is, wow, I can't believe that lady knew all that stuff about ancient Rome and about, you know, uh, records uh, and yeah, about video games, or right. Whatever they Alcoholic talk about beverages. Yeah. yeah. But you, you wouldn't be impressed at all that she, you know, makes sense of what the clue is saying. And that's the deal with Watson. Right. It's not interesting that a computer has all that knowledge because it can just, you know, have terabytes of memory that it runs through. What's interesting is that it knew what the question was referring to. Right, right. And that that was one of those things that really opened up a lot of eyes. I said, wow, this is exciting. A computer is, at least on some level, understanding what it's supposed to be looking for. Uh, whether that, you know, that understanding doesn't go on to the same level as it would with a human, but it's still really impressive because generally you would have a computer and you'd give it some sort of wordplay response and chances are it would not come up with an appropriate answer. It would either not answer at all because it wouldn't hit that threshold mm-hmm. of certainty or it would give them an incorrect answer. And, and you know, once, once or twice, Watson gave funny, wrong answers. It's not like it was infallible, but it was it worked more than it didn't work and, in fact, beat the two champions. So pretty exciting. Well, the Watson Developer Cloud is uh sort of a it's it's kind of an umbrella it's a, it's a uh application program interface also known as an API mm-hmm. and developers can use it to leverage this cognitive computing approach this language recognition approach natural language recognition uh and then leverage that into other applications so watson itself has gone on to do lots of work in other fields and most notably medicine uh being able to uh help doctors end up uh, looking at various means of treatment, even uh, personalizing treatment for patients with certain illnesses or conditions. But this was something where, you know, if you were a developer and you wanted to try and leverage this technology that had already been built, you could then build your own thing and make something really special. And one of those things was the tone analyzer. (laughs) so it, it it searches for social, written, and emotional cues in a body of text in order to analyze the tone of the overall text and to tell you how is that coming across 
in an analytical way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have tested the, the block that you have written and it comes across as 73% cheerful, which sounds really weird, but <laughs> that's essentially what you're getting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's important to note that, that this is harder in written text, hypothetically, than it is in spoken text because of all of those clues that we get uh, from each other when we're talking out loud. Sure. I mean, it's much easier to detect sarcasm in person. I mean, you've probably had this experience, even though you're not a computer, you are a real human, I assume. Yeah, we're, we're guessing at least half of you are. Assuming you are a real human, you have probably had instances before where you can't read sarcasm in an email. You're or like, why, why is he saying yeah. that? Why is this person so angry at and, me? And yeah. then you, you need find, to include a winky face. Right. They're like, I was just joking. And then you feel foolish. But I mean, the, the lack of all this context that we get from body language and tone and stuff can be difficult. Right. And in fact, that's part of the application of this. But I'll get into that in a second. So essentially what this tone analyzer is doing is it's it's examining all the words within that block of text and tagging those words uh, based upon how a predetermined categorization has been set up for the tone analyzer. Mm-hmm. So certain words fall under the general category of cheerful. That's a great example because it pops up a lot. And uh, then it ends up giving you a percentage of the overall tone of the the piece, you can actually do it in two ways. You can get a word count or you can get a percentage approach. Uh, the word count just tells you how many of the words within a given block of text fall into each category. Mm-hmm. So whether it's social or it's a writing cue or it's an emotional cue. And then the percentage gives you kind of a what what is the thrust? Like what is the impact on the reader? So – that suggests that there are weightings to these words, right? That certain words are weighted as being more powerful. I found the percentage results to be more interesting because the word count results just tell you, oh, most of your words are social orientation. Right, which mm-hmm. could be simple things like the, and, but, or. Like that doesn't have – that doesn't impact a lot unless you're using them really well. But uh, the words that were – But, descript- but, but, or – <laughs> Butts can be extremely, <laughs> extremely uh, uh, powerful. Yes, yes, yes. They can. yes. But, yeah. but uh, and but <laughs> ideally, what this would allow you to do is tell how your work might impact a reader mm-hmm. before the reader has a chance to to uh, see this written work. And you might be able to then revise that work if it doesn't seem like it's getting across the message you had intended. So uh, it's it's kind of like a, hey, listen, uh, I know you think you might be coming across this way, but this is analytically how you are coming across. Do you want an option to change up some of this stuff? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could change some of these uh aggressive words to be more friendly, for example. Yeah, yeah. Or it may be that if it's in a business letter, maybe the aggressive tone is exactly what you wanted. So it gives you the opportunity to go the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, what will happen is when you use the the app, it highlights each word or most of the words, almost all of them in a uh, block of text. And then by clicking on it, you can have options to change that word to, to a synonym. And it even uh, categorizes the synonym according to the various social writing or emotional cues. So if you wanted to make it a more emotional plea, you could do that by going under the emotional category and choosing a synonym under there. And presumably, this would make your presentation or letter or whatever it is 
more have more of an emotional impact. I didn't I didn't understand some of the options it was giving me with the synonyms because at one point it suggested to make my thing more agreeable I changed the word bad to the word lousy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's more jokey, like kind of like like it's got I think that lousy has a slightly softer connotation. Yeah, lousy, I guess. Lousy then just bad. I would say lousy like, comes across as a little more playful. Oh, right. Like yeah, if yeah, I were yeah. to say Lauren is a bad person versus Lauren is a lousy person. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're just a lousy person, then, you know, you can pick those louses off. <laughs> so, yeah, so you just need better. some of that shampoo. Yeah, yeah, much better than being bad. Yeah. It reminds me of that amazing <laughs> Michael Jackson song, Lousy. It's fantastic. <laughs> the video for that was amazing. Uh, so... It, the the idea being that with a tool like this, in the future, you could actually build this functionality directly into something else, like a word processor mm-hmm. or an email program or text That's messaging. That's where it'd be most useful. Right. Mm-hmm. The idea being that before you save a document, before you send an email, before you send off that text message or update your Facebook post, mm-hmm. the analyzer could tell you, oh, hey, by the way, you're coming across as a total jerk face. Oh, this should be beside the tweet button. Yes, it yeah. should be. Well, the, and, and I think, you know, making it something that is um, like word count or spell check. Or spell check, yeah, or, or even grammar check these days. Yeah, I think as long as it didn't get in the way of what you were doing, if it were an optional thing for you to check or it was, you know, unobtrusive, yeah, then it'd be it great. Underlined it in, in fuchsia or something yeah. like that, you know, whatever color is left over. Right, so, exactly. Something that's not going to easily be confused with the colors we're already using for everything else with mm-hmm. grammar and, and spelling errors. But it would be helpful and uh, it might mean that you would avoid some of those situations where you dash off a message to someone thinking it's perfectly fine and they receive it and are offended or confused or or hurt, Mm -hmm. whatever that may be. Well, let's talk about some examples. Yeah. So there is a demo available online. Uh, You can go to the Tone Analyzer website and actually try the live demo. It allows you to paste in or type in a block of text and then you can analyze it. and so I decided I would throw in – it took me a long time to decide which opening line I would use from all the different novels that I love. But I mm-hmm. chose this one. See if you recognize it. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes, it's from Black Books, the series. <laughs> <laughs> Actually is used in Black Books, but obvi- black, but that's not obviously where it's from. At any rate – this Jane Austen quote, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the analyzer said that the emotional tone was 97% cheerful. The social tone was 76% open and 51% agreeable. And the writing tone was 95% analytical. Uh, looking at it at a word count, like Joe was saying, not as interesting. So I just went with the percentiles. But mm-hmm. if you did look at the word count, only 5% of the sentence is in an emotional tone, 89% in social tone, and 5% in writing tone, just by words. But when it looks at the impact, the emotional impact and the, uh, and the social, um, or the, the writing impact rather is much greater than the social impact. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it was almost like a third, a third, and a third. So even though there were fewer writing cues and emotional cues in the sentence I picked, they had a greater impact than the social cues did, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. But, uh, it also shows that when you, when you do this, you see how, how the analyzer is picking out each word and classifying it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it breaks it down by color. Yeah, yeah. So if you are looking at the emotional words, those are highlighted in shades of red or pink. Uh, and you know the the emotional one is divided up a little bit too, so that way, like cheerful is one of them, and I think that's a very pink color that they use for cheerful, and so all the cheerful words were bright pink. Um, then social words were all in shades of blue, and writing tone words were all in shades of green. And if you clicked on them, that's where it would give you the the option to switch yeah. those out, so that you can you know if you, did you did you mean lousy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you really mean in want of a wife? Uh, but also I should point out that the results we get are – you know, one thing you have to keep in mind is what is the basis of comparison? Because it's not just a, a universal you know, text analyzer. It's actually uh, analyzing it against a standard. And in this case, the standard they were using was the standard you would use for business letters. Mm-hmm. So according to you – know, compared <laughs> to your business letter standard, Jane Austen, you know, it's 97 percent cheerful. So – I'll buy that. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the other things is that I think the, a full tone analyzer would have different comparisons you could use, not just the business letter mm-hmm. approach. Right. So it would also like compare you to threatening letters from creditors. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe maybe we can finally get that direct computer comparison of Jane Austen to like Hemingway or something like that. It would be interesting. So, you know, I, I know there was a an article in which an author uh, or, or the writer of the article said that they had compared themselves to uh, Mark Twain. Oh, yeah, I read that mm-hmm. one. Yeah, which was entertaining and said that according to the analysis, the two wrote in a very similar way, like the, the percentages came out in a similar way and uh, actually used that as a means of talking about the limitations of that. But, Joe, you used an example that also kind of <laughs> showed some limitations of the tone analyzer. Yeah, I, I was like, well, what's it going to make of something really philosophical? So I put in a quote from Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. Cheerful stuff. Yeah, so the, yeah. the underground man is talking in his long sort of uh, diary section in the first half. And he says... I could not become anything, neither good nor bad, neither a scoundrel nor an honest man, neither a hero nor an insect, and now I am eking out my days in my corner, taunting myself with the bitter and entirely useless consolation that an intelligent man cannot seriously become anything, that only a fool can become something. All right, so what what did the analyzer have to say about this? Well, again, I'm going with the percentile feedback, not the word count. Sure is more interesting. It says the emotional tone was anger, 100%. That seems accurate. (laughs) Uh, Negativity, 100%. Okay, yeah, got that. And cheerfulness, 97%. Cheerfully angry and negative. Actually, that's not a bad interpretation of that passage. <laughs> it that, is kind of manic in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of upbeat about the fact that, that the world is bleak and dire and there's absolutely nothing to be done about it. It, it. does make me wonder what the five emotions in the head of the underground man, a la Inside Out, would be doing at this particular point. Right, right. So uh, I, I want to say more about that in a minute, but just a little more on the Drinking, result. Yeah. Probably, yeah. I'm guessing you're right. Yeah, but yet he refuses to do anything about his liver problem out of spite. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so it also says among the social tone breakdown, it was 42% agreeableness, 0% conscientiousness, and 0% openness. Mm. 
And then the writing tone was 100% analytical, 0% confident, and 89% tentative. And I was like, well, that's about, that's actually, about right. 0% confident is, th- this is really telling that's us stuff. It's a description of about, Notes from Underground. Sort yeah. Of. Well, no, it's actually like simultaneously 100% confident and yeah. 0% confident. Yeah. Uh, tentative might be a good word. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> I highlighted four words in that feedback that are, the, so it tells you why. It's rating it a certain way. So mm-hmm. I was looking for the where did that 97% cheerfulness result come from? Mm-hmm. And it was like, look, you said the words good, honest, hero, and intelligent. Clearly you were being cheerful. Right. I mean, this is hilarious if you consider the passage in context because the first three of those, good, honest, and hero, are counterfactual negations. He says, I am neither good nor bad. I'm not these things. Mm-hmm. And then intelligent, he's not saying like it's good to be intelligent. He's talking about it being a curse to be intelligent. Right. Yeah. And this actually highlights a problem with the analyzer in general, which is that it's looking at individual words, but it cannot necessarily understand the context of those words. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's doing nothing to parse the context. Right. It's 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 just isolating each word and then kind of doing a tally at the end and saying, well, here are all the good words and here are all the negative words and here are all the, you know, the the indifferent words and when you weigh them all out by their the their how many there are and the actual emotional weight. I don't know what the weighting system is, but it's clearly not a one-to-one sort of thing. But once it all figures it out, here's the result. So it would probably give the cheerfulness thumbs up to an email that I sent to my boss if it said, like, you are not good, you are not honest, and you should not go on living. Yes, exactly. If you were to type, (laughs) I am glad, and then you typed, I am not glad, you would get very similar results Mm -hmm. in the tone analyzer because it's picking out glad as being a cheerful word, but it's not figuring out that one of those sentences essentially is the opposite of the other. You know, it doesn't know that. Uh, so perhaps maybe one day the tone analyzer will actually be able to understand context as well beyond just these, these, you know, recognizing the individual words, but understand what collectively they are trying to get across so that when you do analyze the tone of a message, it's more accurate. So before you send that email, before you save that document, before you, you know, deliver your presentation. You, you can really... get a cold, unfeeling robot to tell you how much of a cold, unfeeling robot you are. Or, <laughs> or a cold, unfeeling robot could say, you know, based upon the analytical uh uh, and based on the data analysis of how what your word choice and the way you put them together, uh, you're going to come across as a real mensch. Yeah, I mean, you don't. <laughs> are you sure you want to keep comparing your coworkers to insects? <laughs> yeah, are you and sure Mr. bitter is the Ms. right word. Mr. Kafka, are you are you sold on this being a bug thing? Um, <laughs> yeah, and until until that point, it's really just kind of a interesting footnote in in the overall history of IBM and, and their wonderful word processing technologies. They actually coined the term word processing back in 1964 oh, yeah? in the marketing materials for an electric typewriter. Yep. The, the first electric typewriter that had a magnetic tape memory drive. Yeah. Wow. My, my dad had one of those. Uh, not I that, did not know that. My, yeah. Not that particular generation of word processors, but dad did have one that was of that same before we had a computer, we had a word processor. Um, and it also illustrates how difficult 
natural language and understanding humans, uh, this how difficult that problem is for for computers for artificial intelligence. Uh, we we see a lot of developments in AI that are really really promising, but we have to remind ourselves there's still a long way to go. And there are other things that we can talk about too. This isn't the only tool that's ever been built to try and understand the tone or whether or not someone's being sincere in a message, right? Oh, of course. Uh, so back in 2010, there was a group of researchers out of the Hebrew University in Israel who designed Sassy. <laughs> That's the semi-supervised algorithm for sarcasm identification. And that's so awesome. It's, it's, it's even better because it's not sassy with the Y. It's S-A-S-I. Yeah. And yeah. actually, really, there should be a heart over the I, I instead think so. of a dot. I think so. I think that's probably if sassy had hands, that's mm-hmm. how it would write its own name. Right. But it would be a sarcastic heart over the I. Oh, yeah. An ironic one. Hella sarcastic. So, so, so this, so this team set Sassy to, I'm, I'm gonna giggle every single time I say that name. Okay. Uh, they set Sassy to analyze collections of 5.9 million tweets and 66,000 product reviews from Amazon. And, wow. okay, since as we have discussed, sarcasm is most naturally conveyed via vocal tone and nonverbal cues, they first had to map out what sarcasm actually looks like in text hmm. and, and came up with Kind of, kind of a matrix of, of like hyperbolic words and excessive punctuation or using lots of ellipses in particular mm-hmm. was something that they earmarked and straightforward sentence structure. So diagramming sarcasm. Yeah. And, and I think this was probably the most difficult part, part of their research. Sure. Like everything else after that, like, like creating these patterns for the machine to look for was the most difficult thing. Wow. So they, they gave it examples of sarcasm by, <laughs> By feeding it tweets that were tagged, like hashtag sarcasm, and also one-star Amazon reviews that had been deemed sarcastic by a panel of 15 humans. It's funny because they could have just had the computer follow certain Twitter accounts yeah. <laughs> and say, like, you can be 99% sure that any tweet coming from this account <laughs> is sarcastic. Also, remember, this was back in 2010, so yeah. so Twitter was relatively new at still, the time. Still newish, yeah. 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 Uh, New enough that in their report about it, they spent like a long time describing what, what Twitter, Twitter is. Was. I was like, "Oh, <laughs> buddies." Uh, okay, so they then instructed Sassy to rate sentences from uh, one to five, with one being not sarcastic at all and five being super sarcastic. Gotcha. And they found that Sassy could identify sarcastic Amazon reviews with seventy-seven percent precision. And it did even better on Twitter, kind of unexpectedly, because there's less context to work with in in tweets, which are short and kind of stream of consciousness a lot of the time. Its precision rate over there was 79%. Yeah. When you're huh. limited to 140 characters, it is, it is something of an art to get across uh, sarcasm in a way that people realize it's sarcastic. By the way, not definitely an art, not a science. Oh, yeah. I have posted many things where I thought, well, clearly people will understand that this is not an actual sincere statement. And I have been wrong. At least one person proves me wrong. Uh, well, this will be the second time in a couple of weeks that I've had to bring up Poe's Law on a podcast. I mean, if you're saying something that sounds extreme to parody extremism, people will take you seriously on the Internet <laughs> because it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's hard to tell the difference between a parody of an extreme view and an actual extreme view. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why a lot of the kind of rival sites that are popping up to the to the onion 
I think, fail really hard sometimes because yeah. I'm like, whoo, you guys need to take it much further or just stop writing entirely. Right. <laughs> because, because instead that, of it being satire, it just comes across as a lie. Right. Yeah. And slander is a different thing than satire. Yes. So, uh, but so, so th- this research team decided that Sassy was really good at detecting very straightforward sarcasm, the the kind that, in retrospect, lots of people probably use on Twitter precisely because you have such limited space and limited context, so you have to be pretty direct. Uh, Sassy made a lot more false negative evaluations than false positives, which indicates that a lot of the more subtle stuff or the more intricate stuff was slipping by it. Okay, so could you give an example of, like, the difference between straightforward sarcasm and non-straightforward sarcasm? Uh, yeah, sure. A simple one might be something like, wow, Mondays are my favorite days ever, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And something a little bit more complicated. I, I can't say whether or not this was actually used in the study, but I cribbed this from um, Amazon.com from, from that banana slicer, if you guys have seen that. Yeah, one of the reviews is, I tried the banana slicer and found it unacceptable. As shown in the picture, the slicer is curved from left to right. All of my bananas are bent the other way. So, you know, a little bit harder for a computer to pick up on that. Right. Yeah, there were uh, other cues as well that they would rely upon, like the hashtag sarcasm. If mm-hmm. there's certain phrases that without that hashtag, they're not sarcastic. Like, I can't wait to get home tonight. If I just post that, then it seems like I can't wait to get home tonight. But if I do hashtag sarcasm, then you then know, you're vague tweeting and it's annoying. Well, no, then you know I'm you know I you know I definitely can wait <laughs> before I get home tonight. You might not know why, but you know that I'm not looking forward to it. Right, which is vague tweeting, which is annoying. It's not as vague as some of the stuff I see on there. <laughs> At least with the, the hashtag, you realize what the tone is. It's not as vague. I guess. <laughs> At any rate, uh, yeah. So. Another example of this, going back to IBM and, and Watson, actually, um, is the use of the, uh, the that language recognition, that natural language uh, cognitive computing approach toward perhaps like getting computers to, uh, to come up with some arguments. Yeah, this is an interesting thing that I read about last year and wrote a blog post for our website about is the Watson debater. Yeah. So this was a a new iteration in the development of Watson Technologies that was designed to look for arguments. Right. Like statements in support or in opposition to a proposition. Right. And this is interesting because it's more difficult than you might think to do this. Yeah. So there was a presentation about it last year at the uh, the Milken Institute Global Conference. Right. Yeah. Uh, Milken Institute is an economic think tank. I didn't know that. Yeah. I looked it up. <laughs> so I was curious. But, uh, yeah, the, the conference had a whole bunch of different people, uh, give a presentation about the, um, the, the near future. And it was kind of like, you know, what's next gonna, is gonna blow your mind. Kind of mm-hmm. sort of the same sort of stuff we like to talk about here on Forward Thinking. Mm-hmm. And they had several guests. Among them was a representative from IBM. So John Kelly? Yeah. yeah. And, and he was unveiling the debater for the first time to the public. It was something that up to that point had only been discussed internally at IBM. Right. Um, and so what he was demonstrating was the debater's ability to not come up with arguments because right. we're nowhere near there yet, that level of uh, processing and synthesis. But it could look at a whole bunch of articles 
and say, what are some statements in support of or in opposition to a proposition? Right. So they gave the example in the presentation of the proposition, the sale of violent video games to minors should be banned. Right. I love it because it includes banned. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and it's it's cool. The process that this, this uh, tool uses mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. First, it scans pretty much everything it has access to. Yeah. Uh, and in the, this case... The demonstration they showed at the conference, it scanned four million articles. And this was just to see if the articles that it had access to were relevant to the actual question. Yeah. Then uh-huh. it picked some top contenders. Yeah, the 10 best fits to the, the uh, topic at hand and then scanned all the sentences in those 10 best articles. Which About 3,000. Yeah. Going through 3,000 sentences and then started to classify those sentences as being either in favor of banning violent video games or against the banning of violent video games, uh, at least uh, the sale of violent video games to minors. And uh, they looked for sentences that contained what they called candidate claims that would either be one of those statements for or against the the central premise. Uh, and then they, the, it would identify the parameters of those claims and then assessed those claims, uh, whether or not they were truly pro or con and then put them into those, those camps. Yeah. So ultimately you would ask the computer, all right, so what are the arguments for and against this proposition? And it would say in favor of the motion, violent video games should be banned. It should be noted that. Yeah. Violent video games actually cause aggressive behavior. And then, you know, some other statements along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then it would say, in opposition to the proposition, violent video games should be banned. It should be noted that violent video games do not actually cause violent behavior. <laughs> right. There's no causation link. Yeah. Uh, so, which is funny because it'll it'll take two completely contradictory statements and cite them both. Right. Yeah. There are certain things that, that leap out at you, especially with this particular example. And mm-hmm. it's funny I, because I watched it and I made notes and then I read the rest of your blog and it posted and, and you and I had the exact same reactions. Yeah. Uh, one of them being that uh, one of the statements that just rubbed me the wrong way was about how it uh, was it essentially said that video games, the playing of video games is a, uh, a, a, a popular pastime for boys. It says playing violent video games is part of a boy's natural childhood development. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, OK, I know the computer is not sexist, right. but it, it just has <laughs> yeah. access yeah. to some sexist views. And, and this, yeah. this shows the limitations of this approach, right? The, oh, sure. Well, and, and, and it shows the, really the limitations of humans at sure. that point to to yeah. a to well, come up editors for yeah. one thing. <laughs> okay yeah yeah well to, to to come up with convincing debates or, or convincing debate statements in in yeah. saying something completely unsupported right and also in just making making stuff up yeah so yeah like why i i don't know what the the funny thing to me was it had plenty of statements it could have chosen from i like actually found the wikipedia article that it was cribbing its arguments from. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I looked at the article and I was like, there were better statements in this exact same paragraph you could have used than that one. Why did that Why statement did it... get selected? Well, and well, I, ultimately, I don't know. One thing we we don't necessarily know is when it looked at the Wikipedia article, which could oh, have been altered true. between yeah. the time it, it did its research and when you did yours. Sure. But I doubt that it was that significant if it was within that same paragraph. I doubt there was 
a lot of there were a lot of changes. I mean, if that particular sentence didn't appear at all within the paragraph, then I would say, oh, something's happened. Yeah. But um, at any rate, yeah, it's it's it was problematic with that particular <laughs> uh, example. But it does show that it's reliant completely upon the it's relying completely upon the content that humans have created. Now, right. un- undeniably, since the beginning of time, it has been a natural part of boys' childhood. <laughs> Because the concept Look, of maleness. Ever since we dwelled in the halls of Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll, I'll never forget the uh, the the story I read about uh, the the uh, ancient humans playing Woolly Mammoth Destroyer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know games like that. Uh, so, it, oh, but no, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. It, it's just reflecting the fact that it, all it has to work with is what humans have said, and it doesn't have a good criteria, as far as we can tell, for judging the difference between a good supporting argument and a bad supporting yeah, argument. It's interesting. It's, it's, it it's can't just parsing ev- for, is this in support or not? Yeah, it can't, yeah. it can't judge, is this a good logical argument? Right, it could actually come up with arguments that contain logical fallacies in them. That's mm-hmm. the really interesting thing is that and it's not because the com- it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's doing exactly what it was meant to do. It's just that the material it's pulling from itself is flawed. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we can't think of it as some sort of magical oracle that we can consult and it has access to truth with a capital T. It has access to the same stuff you and I would have access to if we just poured over Wikipedia for a few days when right. we were trying to research something and had no judgment criteria. Right. Basically. Uh, sure. But but it's, you know, hopefully in the future or possibly in the future, if, if they choose to continue developing it, it could turn into, if not an oracle, at the very least, a source of of better advice. Well, and, and the thing that they mm-hmm. were talking about using it for didn't have anything to do with trying to figure out a debate like a political debate or or a social debate. They were actually talking about uh, using it in the context of, um, again, the discipline of medicine, where let's say that you are part of uh, a hospital administration staff and you're trying to determine which policies and procedures you want to put in place in your hospital. And so you have to do all that research. You have to figure out what are the benefits, what are the drawbacks of all these different alternatives. And potentially you could use uh, a technology like this that would then come back with the pros and cons of each approach, allowing you to make a more informed decision. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just loving the idea that the machine that identified uh, playing violent video games as part of a boy's natural <laughs> childhood development, deciding what anesthetic dose I get. Well, to be fair, it's not relying on Wikipedia in the second uh, instance. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right? So we can relax on that. Now, when we get the home version, no, I, we can I sit mean, there and ask uh, which demonstrably, which transformer is demonstrably the most important, and then it would be able to tell us. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think doctors yeah. are actually just going to cede all of their authority to the now, Watson debater and say, well, what do we give them, you know? Yeah, they were, they were specifically using this as the demo of what the technology can do, not as a, you know, this is exactly what's going to rely upon. So right. instead of relying upon Wikipedia, be relying upon the literature and the medical field, the research that been done. And even then, I assume it would be in an advisory function, not well, in yeah. a decision-making it would essentially, function. Well, again, if it's giving right. you pros and cons, then ultimately the decision still falls on the humans. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not able to weight which ones are more important. 
Like it could say the pros are your hallways Yet. will be less cluttered. The cons are 78% of your patients will die. <laughs> like I recommend you do this because you have cluttered halls. That's not going to be how it turns out. Well, I can see something like this actually being useful to me in my job uh, just as a shortcut for digging up leads on a subject. Sure. For oh, example, sure. like, uh, you know, I read an article about a subject I've never read about before. Yeah. And the article has one pretty clear view on it, like it's in favor of X. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know what the arguments against X are, if there are any. Something like this could be really useful, like, oh, here are some things to look up. I I think it would be really useful for something like, let's say that we wanted to cover a uh, a controversial uh, topic in physics. Something like – because I'm seeing it pop up yet again. The M drive would be a great example. Mm -hmm. Something that could – scour through the actual scholarly material and come back with the pros and cons of something like that so that we at least have a starting point. Yeah, and then I think you it, can go look up the what's behind those. Exactly. Sure, sure. Kind of like the references in Wikipedia, right? Mm-hmm. You go to a Wikipedia article, you scan down to the references, and you go to those sources to yeah. see if, in fact, they do reflect what is – or if the article reflects what was in the actual primary sources. Half Which the is time. the proper way to use Wikipedia, yes. folks. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, isn't it kind of funny how often that's a dead link and you don't know if it's ever been alive? Yeah. Well, you can always go to archive.org and check it out. I've done that yeah. many times, actually. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to talk about really briefly to kind of wrap this up is, is this actually the future of computing? Is cognitive computing, this idea of creating a machine that can at least on some level mimic the way we humans think, is that the future? And it seems like more and more people are leaning toward, yes, that is the future, but it is the future. It's not now. Yeah, it's it's one of those. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys can tolerate the theme song today, but but it's it's going to happen in a certain period of years from now. Right. So the, the neural network software, the, the hardware that's necessary, it, it it requires a lot of processing power in order for it to even come close to what we humans are capable of doing just naturally. And in fact, uh, in that same presentation that uh, that Kelly did uh, at the, the conference, he pointed out that brains are really amazing and said that, you know, they require very little power. It's the equivalent of about 20 watts. Mm-hmm. So less than a light bulb, most light bulbs. Um, and if you compare that to a supercomputer, it's nothing. And you also look at the intricate connections that our brains have. We have, you know, 80 to 100 billion neurons and then all the different connections between those neurons, uh, trillions of them. It's It's phenomenal what our brains are able to do. Meanwhile, if you wanted to create a simulation of that, they talked about how they used um, a supercomputer at the Livermore Laboratory uh, that was uh, a simulating a neural network, uh, like a, a human brain. And it required eight megawatts of power. So Ooh. eight million watts. Wow. As opposed to 20. Uh, with 1.5 million processors, so compared to 80 to 100 million neurons, uh, capable of processing 6.3 billion threads uh, simultaneously, and it ran 1,500 times slower Oof. than the human brain. So just simulating a fraction of what our brains can do uh, requires much more processing power, much more literal power, like electricity, and it takes longer. So 
while this is awesome and, and we love the idea of having computers that can actually learn as opposed to you have to program it, you know, if you can teach the computer something over time, and we this goes back to the, the Google Dream stuff we were talking about mm-hmm. too, um, that's fantastic. But we're still at a point where until there's a breakthrough either on the technological side or the programming side, they're lagging way behind what we we humans can do just because we're fundamentally different. Uh, but it is exciting that this is a trend, and I expect we'll see that trend continue. And I love the idea that at some point I'm going to have a little app on my phone that will warn me before I send a text to my wife so that I can reword it and she won't be mad at me for for good reason. But, you know, it might be a misinterpretation, but accidental, but it falls on my shoulders yeah. that I did not word things in a way that misinterpretation it, it'll is tell minimized. you like did you did you really want to say that you're a lousy wife <laughs> yeah maybe you want to say bad <laughs> <laughs> no i don't want to say that thanks but yeah this was a uh, this was fun to look into uh i recommend you guys if you haven't played with the tone analyzer go and yeah. go and play with that either take a paragraph from someplace or type something up or uh, I even when I did the video episode about this I took the first paragraph I wrote for the episode and fed it back through the analyzer mm-hmm. and it said I was very open and conscientious Aww. and cheerful so got it right um, <laughs> but yeah you, you should job. go check that out because that demo is available for everybody and gold star thanks now yeah. what's going to happen when you run your secret underground diaries through it uh, it's probably going to say, like, don't ever show this to anyone else. Aww. So you guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, uh, you should let us know. Send run us them through a, a tone out. Run them through a tone analyzer first. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> Write up an email to us, put it through the tone analyzer, change 30% of the words arbitrarily, and then send it along to us, and we'll see what we think of it. Um, make it more cheerful. Uh, no, but seriously, if you have a suggestion, you should write us. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter, Google Plus, or Facebook. At Twitter and Google Plus, we are fwthinking. Just search fwthinking in that handy dandy search bar on Facebook. We will pop right up. You can leave us a message. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.